Well, if we have not met before, my name is James. I am uh, the associate pastor here. Now, I I have a six-year-old son named Seth, um, and Seth is at this point in his life where he's trying out new words. Um, He's working on expanding his vocabulary. And so it makes for some hilarious times because he's using words totally out of context. And and so he was up playing a game upstairs one day last week, and I just hear him, he's by himself, and he just keeps going, mercy, mercy, mercy. I was like, where'd he pick that one up? But it's, it's kind of funny. But there are times where um, he'll, he'll use words that he's picked up that, that aren't really good words to be using. And so we'll be playing Lego, or we'll be having a Nerf battle, and he'll blurt something out, and I'll stop the game, and I go, where did you hear that word? Now, I I don't really need to ask him where he heard that word. Like, I don't say that word. Shannon doesn't say it. So it's quite obviously Shannon's family that's teaching him those type (laughs) of like. uh, Well, I I should, let's let's not spread rumors. Greg does not have a foul mouth. Um, It's his wife. I'm, (laughs) I'm kidding. He's picking it up at school. That's where Seth's picking up this language. And so I will say, Buddy, you might hear other people using this language, but that's not words we use in our family. That's mean. It, it's, it's not a nice word. God doesn't really like when we talk that way. And he'll say, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. And then he'll be like, what does that word mean? I'm like, don't worry about it. You'll learn when you're older. Just don't say it. But sometimes as Christians, what we can do is we can hear things and, and, and kind of put them into our prayers. And hopefully we're not talking curse words here. Um, what we're talking about is this. Prayer is often uh, caught just as much, if not more, than it is taught. Prayer is often caught more than it is taught. And what I mean is this. You're, you're praying with people, and somebody prays for something, and, and you go, I, I like that prayer. I like the way they prayed it. I like the way it sounded. And you start to incorporate that into your own prayers. And, and that's good. One of the best ways to learn how to pray is to hang out with people who pray. That's, that's how your prayer life will grow. But sometimes what we can do is we'll hear somebody praying for something and we're like, ah, oh, I like the sounds of that. We'll begin to pray for it. And we might not totally understand what we're praying for. Um, if you grew up in the church, chances are you grew up um, with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, maybe your church repeated it every week or maybe you'd use it every once in a while. Um, and maybe you know that prayer really well, and you can rhyme that thing off without really having to think about the words. And that's one of the things we're kind of warning against in our breakthrough series, is just praying the Lord's Prayer without thinking about the words you're saying. Because if you do this, you're actually asking for some pretty bold things. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 for a good chunk of the morning here. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus says, Uh, for us to pray this. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge. Like how many of us though have, have been praying the Lord's Prayer, repeating it, and we've just blown through those words without really thinking about what we're asking God to do. We're saying to God, forgive me in the same way that I have forgiven others. Apply my standard of forgiveness that I put on others as your standard of forgiveness for me. Now there's there's actually quite a debate amongst biblical scholars as to what Jesus is talking about here in, in regards to forgiveness. Some read this and they go, well, Jesus isn't talking about eternal matters of forgiveness, but only earthly ones. So if, if you don't forgive somebody in an earthly relationship, 
um, and you hold it against them, that's going to impact your fellowship. That's going to impact your intimacy with God. And God may bring discipline upon the hard-hearted believer. And I mean, there's, there's some validity, I think, to that view. But others, others say that Jesus is, is actually talking about eternal matters of forgiveness here. Um, that God's forgiveness, our salvation, is contingent upon how we forgive others. Thomas Watson, he said this about this prayer, or this text. He said, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. Charles Spurgeon, he says, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. I mean, that, that kind of makes you um, say that line or think about it in a different way. Now, last week, Greg talked about how an unforgiving spirit can be an obstacle to prayer, and it was kind of based off 6.12. But I wanted to come back and, and revisit this um, because I think it's important. that This verse, this is the only part of Jesus' prayer where there's contingencies upon it. This is the only part of Jesus' prayer where after he finishes it, he goes and he immediately gives additional commentary um, to it. Um, and so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, 15, Jesus says, this is right after he finishes, finishes the prayer, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so Jesus re-emphasizes this point immediately after he finishes the prayer. And I think Jesus is stressing it um, for a few reasons. One, because there's significant implications upon how we forgive other people. And he also knows that as human beings, we wrestle with um, forgiveness. Now, Jesus seems to be implying that God's forgiveness is tied to how we show forgiveness to other people. Now, we might read that and go like, whoa, <laughs> that's hard, that's, that's harsh, that's a little extreme. Surely, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Um, but it, go, if you go to John chapter 6, verse 60, what, what do people see, say about Jesus' teaching? That is a hard teaching. His teachings are difficult to accept, and they still are today. And so in praying, forgive me as I have forgiven others, you're asking God to deal with your sin in the same way that you deal with people's sins against you. And, and please understand, I am not saying that your forgiving other people is what saves them. And it's not what saves you. Salvation is a gift from God. But receiving forgiveness from God, whether it's earthly or eternal, is contingent upon how we forgive other people. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to kind of put my cards on the table right at the beginning. I think what Jesus is talking about here, I, I strongly believe that there are eternal implications to what he's talking about here in our forgiveness of others. And I hope you'll see as we go on. But in our culture, we don't tend to... Uh, talk a lot about sin. We don't tend to um, think sin's a big deal. We don't really talk about how uh, sin is a, a, something that is severe. Um, and people who tend to hold the biblical view of sin are often mocked, um, kind of like, you actually believe that stuff still? Now, I think we've actually um, kind of still are, are kind of adapting that from the world into the church. And um, when I say church, I'm talking about capital C, church. Um, in that Sin is something we, we've kind of minimized. We don't really make a big deal about it in the church. And so there, there are some churches out there that are just like, we're going to avoid the 
S word as much as possible because the word sin makes people a little uncomfortable. And if they get uncomfortable, they might not come back. If they don't come back, they might not hear about Jesus. And if they don't hear about Jesus, how are they going to get saved from their sin? And like, it's like, it's faulty logic. Because that's like a life insurance person saying, I'd like to sell you this life insurance. And somebody's like, why? It's like, I don't know. Like, you, the life insurance person knows they need to talk about death. That, that's, that's important to what they're doing. And so if you study the Gospels, you see Jesus never shies away um, from talking about sin and hard things in hopes of growing his audience. Um, Jesus knew that people needed to know about the realities of sin and its consequences in order for them to be saved. And so in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus says, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, sin. And this might feel a little awkward or weird, but we're going to go for it. But sin is not something that the church invented to keep people in line. It's not something that parents came up with to keep their kids in line and say, if you don't do this, God's going to be mad at you. That's not what sin is. Sin is not merely a disease that plagues a few people. It is not simply a weakness that some people struggle with. Sin is not a social embarrassment that you don't talk about with people, but it's okay to do in the confines of your own home. Sin is not just an impersonal moral deterioration in the human race. Sin is humanity's greatest affliction. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. And so sin affects us all. And in our culture, um, I think, as I said before, we've downplayed the seriousness of sin. We're kind of like what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, verse 30 and 32, where we, we come up with new ways of doing evil. Um, we, we approve of those who do it. We celebrate it. We, we applaud it. We give awards sometimes for, for what God would say is sinful. And so this is what Scripture says. That sin is a trespassing into territory you have no business being in. It is a failure to meet God's standard. Sin is doing the things that you know you shouldn't do, but it's also not doing the things that you know you should do. Sin is rebellion against God's government. It is a factual disobedience of God's law. It is an insult to God's character. It is a rupture of your relationship with God the Father. Sin is a debt owed to God. Um, sin is a failure, failure to love God and to love other people. And when a sin is committed, it's not just kind of out there against nobody. Um, sin is never isolated to our lives alone, where when we sin, it is done against God or against someone else. It affects that relationship. If you look at the Ten Commandments, kind of God's guiding um, law for Israel, he says, when you do these things, it affects your relationship with me or it affects your relationship with somebody else. You sin against God, you sin against people. And a sin against a person is a sin against God because they bear the image of God. And so in our culture, um, I think we play with sin as if it were as harmless as Play-Doh, but it's really like as deadly as plutonium. Uh, we invite sin into our lives and live with it as if it's just this awkward, weird roommate that we don't really like to talk about, where in reality it's this murderer that we've invited into our lives that is seeking to kill us. And so sin is never harmless. 
Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That what we deserve for our sin is death. And death here, we might go, oh, I'm going to die because of my sin. But, but death here doesn't just mean physical death. Um, there is more death beyond physical death. And so death here, it's talking about spiritual, relational, physical death. It is eternal death where we're separated from God and all the blessings of God for all eternity because um, sin cannot be in his presence. And so it's called hell. It's, it's described as this place where the fire is never quenched, where the tears are never wiped away, where there's great pain. It is a place of eternal punishment, torment, exclusion from the presence of God for all eternity. Now, we might, we might hear, oh, hell is exclusion from the presence of God, no relationship with God. That can't be that bad, because some of us might go, I've been living 40 years without a relationship with God, and I'm doing just fine. I think I can do eternity without God. I'll be all right. But if that's our understanding, that's, that's a horrible misunderstanding. Because Jesus says in in um, his teachings, that God causes his sun to shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. His, his rains fall on the just and the unjust. And so what he's saying is right now, we're living in a world where God's goodness is evident in the lives of both believers and non-believers. Um, so, so we're enjoying these things like food and shelter and relationships and medicine and art and on I could go because God is good. Um, regardless of how awesome you are, regardless of what you've done, you are enjoying things in your life because God is good, whether you're a believer or not a believer. But the moment Christ returns to judge the world, all those things are going to disappear in the lives of people who have no relationship with God. And so hell, um, hell is not the loss of being. Hell is the loss of well-being. Being with God is eternal life. Hell is eternal existence. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, um, Paul's kind of talking about this. And he says, You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And so probably two of the most beautiful words that you can ever see in all of Scripture are but God. Because what flows after those two words are, are usually a beautiful um, picture of the gospel, or it is gospel. And, and but God are usually drenched in the grace of God. And so Paul is kind of using this idea. He's saying, you have sinned. You have gone where God says you have no business going. You failed to meet God's standard. You've rebelled against God's rule. You've broken his law. You've insulted God's character. You've ruptured your relationship with him. You failed to love God and love others perfectly. You owed God a debt that you could not pay. And because of that, you were on your way to a hopeless eternity separated from him known as hell. But then Paul says, but God, through Christ, satisfied the law, and that debt is no longer owed. 
that you have been spared the penalty of sin. We call this salvation by grace. And so salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's not a reward for good living. Salvation is a gift to guilty people. And so nobody gets into God's kingdom except by his grace. Forgiveness of sin, it shines through on almost every page of the New Testament because forgiveness is at the core of the gospel. But here you have Jesus saying, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive. If you do forgive, God will forgive. And throughout Jesus' teaching, there's this expectation that a person who's, who's saved by the grace of God is a person who is being changed by the grace of God. A saved person is a notably different person. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 to 20. Um, Jesus is talking about false prophets here, but, but it does apply. He says, you can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. And I I understand that saying um, God's forgiveness of us is contingent upon how we forgive others. That's not something we really want to hear. Um, It's difficult for many of us to hear because if we're honest, most of us struggle with forgiveness. Um, I I think, like, I talked to one in my life group this week that like, that's something I wrestle with at times is, is forgiveness. Um, so I'll, I'll, like, I'm not an exception to any of this. But we might think when Jesus is saying, forgive people their sins against you, he's, he's only talking about these minor, minor sins against us. Like uh, somebody told a white lie to spare my feelings. I, I can forgive that. Or somebody said a mean joke at my expense. I'll get over it. I can forgive them. Or somebody forgot to refill the toilet paper and left me stranded in the bathroom. Like, I think that's a sin against somebody. It's just cruel. <laughs> Borderline major sin. Um, but, but we're going, surely Jesus is only talking about the minor sins here and not those, those major ones. Um, one of the privileges, but also one of the harder things about being in full-time ministry is that you kind of get a front row seat to people's lives, the good and the bad. Um, And so people will often come in and they'll talk about what's going on in their lives, some of the things that they're they're just having to go through. Um, And some of it's it's brutal. Um, When I first got into full-time ministry, I I remember just kind of being shocked what, what people would do to other people. And I, like I, up to that point, I, I realized like I'd been so fortunate because God had blessed me with a, a, a great family, loving parents. Um, and, and I mean, there are times where I'm still shocked at what people do against other people. Um, cases of abuse, neglect, assault, betrayal, cruelty, violence. I'm not going to do specifics, but there's some ugly things out there. And, and those, like when people talk to them, like I, I'm dumbfounded at times about it. It breaks my heart. I pray for these people that God would give them healing. But here's the thing. I also pray that you, if you're going through that, can forgive the person who's committed that sin against you. Um, C.S. Lewis, he, he says this about Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. 
No part of Jesus' teaching was clearer, and there are no exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins, providing they are not too frightful or providing their extenuating circumstances. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. Now we might hear this and we go, but you do not understand what this person has done against me how they've hurt me, how awful it was. Um, I don't think I can forgive them. And to be honest, I don't know if I want to forgive them these things. And as I said kind of before, I'll admit, I, I probably don't fully understand it. I, I can't. I haven't gone through it. Um, and as I said, God has, God has blessed me uh, up, up to this point, I would say. Um, but while I don't get it, Jesus does get it. Jesus sees it. He understands it. And when he says to forgive the person who wrongs you, he's not saying what they did is not wrong. He's not saying that you forgive them and you pick right up where you left off. Like, oh, let's go grab a coffee. Don't worry about this horrible thing you did to me. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying they're not going to be held to account for their sins. Like Paul talks about how in Romans that God says, vengeance is mine. And although it's not easy, Jesus commands us to make amends with somebody who wrongs us as far as we can. And if you can't make amends, you are to forgive that person in your heart. You are not to hold on to the the bitterness, the anger, the resentment against them. It's been said that unforgiveness is like us drinking a poison and hoping that our enemy will die. And so one reason to forgive is that forgiveness tends, unforgiveness, sorry, tends to affect you more than it does the other person. You're the one who loses sleep. You're the one who obsesses over the wrong. You're the one who stresses over it. Greg talked about it last week. Unforgiveness affects our prayers. Unforgiveness also affects our witness to others. And so holding on to bitterness does you no good, but forgiveness, it's where healing can begin. And so I need you to hear me clearly on this part. Um, I'm going to do it carefully. But forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It is not saying we are eternally lost if we sometimes struggle to forgive people for their sins against us. Jesus is not saying you won't be saved if you're trying to forgive somebody, but you're still wrestling with that inside. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus means is this. No one who cherishes holding a grudge against another person should come to God in search of compassion because that's an unrepentant heart. And so there will not be any unforgiven people in heaven. But Jesus also seems to be saying there are not going to be any unforgiving people in heaven. There won't be any unforgiven people in heaven But Jesus is implying there won't be unforgiving people in heaven. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the merciful, because they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called the children of God. 
And so God treats us in accordance to what we believe in our heart. If we think it's a good thing, if we think it's noble that we hold on to resentment, we count the wrongs against us, that God is going to recognize that our request for mercy from him is pure hypocrisy because we're asking him to do something that we're unwilling to do ourselves, that we're asking him to do something that we believe is a sign of weakness or something that is is bad. It would be trying to make God do something you think is beneath you. Your actions condemn you in that they show that you don't actually value forgiveness. And so God says to us, I'm going to show you the type of mercy that you show to other people. So the question is, what type of mercy will you show to other people? In Matthew chapter 18, um, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him this question. How many times should I forgive my, my brother if he sins against me? And Peter goes, seven times? Now, in Judaism, it was customary that you would forgive a person three times. If you forgave a person three times, you are a forgiving person. That fourth time, though, don't worry about it. Now, Peter comes to Jesus seven times. Jesus, look at me. I've doubled it. I've added one. It's a perfect number. Aren't you impressed with how generous I am in my forgiveness, Jesus? And Jesus goes, no, not seven times, but seven times, 70 times. This would shock his, his disciples. They'd be like, well, seven times 70. Th- that's a really big number, Jesus. Like, that's a lot of forgiveness. And Jesus is not saying you have to forgive the person 490 times. And that 491st time, you can just let that bitterness and anger and resentment just flow out of you. No, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, my disciples do not count the wrongs done against them. And I mean, this would shock his his disciples. And so to drive the point home, Jesus tells a story. He says there was this king who decided it was time to settle accounts with his servants who had borrowed money from him. And so uh, the king calls in one of his servants and he's looking over the records and he says, you owe me a lot. Um, Six billion dollars worth in in today's equivalent. It's time to pay up. Uh, The servant's like, "I, I don't have that type money. And the king's like, well, you know what we do. Um, You, your wife, your children are going to be sold into slavery until you can pay that debt back. And the servant's like, just give me more time. He falls on his knees. He says, be patient with me. I'll pay it all back. And the king knows he has no hope of paying that debt back. But instead of just saying, I'll give you a bit more time to try and pay it back, the king cancels the debt. The man walks out. He owes the king nothing. Now that man leaves and he's thinking about collecting debts and debts owed and money that should be coming to him. And he goes, I know somebody owes me money. And he goes out and he finds a fellow servant and he says, you owe me $12,000. It's time to pay up. And that guy's like, well, I don't, I, I can't. And the man grabs him by the throat and starts choking him and says, you owe me money. And the man pleads with him. He says, just just be patient. Give me a a bit more time and I will pay it back. And that first servant says no. He has him arrested and thrown into prison. Now some fellow servants see what what goes on and, and they're greatly troubled by what that first servant did. And so they go and they tell the king what this servant had done. And so the, the, the king calls that first servant back and he says to, to him, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? 
Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Jesus ends the story by saying this. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. And the point Jesus is making in this story is that how in the world can you hold a grudge against somebody who has not nearly offended you in the way that you have offended God? And in the story, there's this, this huge disparity between the size of the debts, and you're not the king in the story who is owed this massive debt. That is, that is God in the story. And so anything anyone has ever done to you, Jesus is saying, you have done far worse to God. And so Jesus is saying, God forgave your massive debt. Should you not forgive others in the same way? And so we should forgive others based on the measure God has forgiven us. Now here's where I think the implications get eternal. If the forgiveness that we we get from the cost of Jesus' death on the cross has been so ineffective in our hearts that we're still bent on holding grudges and bitterness on somebody, we've missed the point of grace. We probably don't cherish God's forgiveness in our lives. We, we probably have not embraced it. We, we really haven't understood what God has done for us. And so if you want God's grace, but you, you refuse to extend that same grace to other people, it means that you have this exaggerated view of people's offenses and sins against you, but you have minimized your own offenses against God. Um, which I actually would say is a form of idolatry. So if you're dead set on not forgiving people who wrong you, you are the first servant in the story. And Jesus is just kind of saying, God calls that type of behavior evil. So Jesus' disciples are to do for others what God has done for them. Whatever God has done for you, he wants you to do for other people. And so what is your heart's attitude towards forgiveness? Because of the forgiveness we've received, grace and mercy should actually be the overflow of our lives. Um, and, and this is why Jesus tells his disciples, you, you, can, um, you can love your enemy. You can pray for the people who persecute you. That his disciples' lives are to be a reflection of God to the world. That the way we live and relate to others are meant to point others to the God who saves in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. And one of our main hopes through this breakthrough series is that um, our heart's desire, that our prayer as individuals and as a church would be what Paul is talking about. Um, that, that, that our heart's desire, that our prayer would be for people to be saved regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done for us. We want grace and mercy to be the overflow of our hearts. And so as I wrap up, I want to leave you with a few questions. Are you actually amazed by the grace of God, or have you grown bored with it? Do you actually understand what God has done for you? Do you appreciate it? And if not, just ask God to help you understand it, to see it in a new way. Is there anyone you are harboring anger, bitterness, or resentment towards that you need to forgive based off of what Jesus has said here? What are you going to do to resolve that? And if you're wrestling with that, ask God to help you forgive this person. That is a prayer God will love. That is a prayer God will honor. And finally, who are you praying for to be saved? Um, ask God to, 
if you don't have a person, to show you a person. Ask God to pour his grace and mercy out of you into their lives. And so when we understand the gospel, our hope and prayer for people is not that they get what they deserve, but that they get what they don't deserve, grace and mercy, because that's exactly what God has done for us through Christ.